This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Thank you, Vajratara, for those uh, kind words of introduction. I'm very happy to be back uh, in Sheffield. Uh, My last visit was about um, six years ago, I think it was, on the occasion of the opening of this then new centre of the FWBO. And I have uh, quite vivid memories of that occasion. But um, six years is quite a long time, and during that time quite a lot has happened. I've visited uh, quite a few centres of the FWPO in the course of the last few years, and now here I am again, here in Coventry. Sorry, here in (laughs) Freudian slip, Uh, Sheffield. And I've been having quite a happy time. Um, I've seen all the improvements that have been made in the course of the last uh, six years. Um, In fact, one might say the, the place has been really transformed. It doesn't feel like a church at all now. <laughs> and uh, I've been strolling around the, the garden, uh, admiring the uh, tangled vegetation and the roses and the uh, allotment. And I've also been having meals, lunches and uh, dinners with uh, different groups of people, which has been very enjoyable. And, uh, in fact, just this evening, I was having uh, dinner with the, uh, the Sheffield um, Evolution Shop team. And uh, they were telling me, uh, I think they were telling me rather proudly, that they were one of the five uh, remaining shop teams, Evolution Shop teams, in the FWBO, which were manned entirely by members of the Sangha. And I was very pleased to to hear that, because team-based right livelihood has always been very close to my heart. And I'm glad to know that it's flourishing here in Sheffield, along with the other FWBO activities. In the course of the the conversation uh, over dinner, Um, somehow the the subject of um, South London came up and uh, I of course um, am from South London and uh, I was brought up in in Tooting a lot of people laugh when they hear the word Tooting (laughs) I don't know quite why hmm? (laughs) but uh, that is where I was brought up I wasn't actually born in Tooting, I was born in Stockwell, which is even worse. (laughs) Um, 
But when I look back, I, I, I think in a way how extraordinary it was, how extraordinary it is that um, someone whose whole life has been devoted to the Dharma and who ended up founding a new Buddhist order should have seen the light of day in South London of all places and been brought up in Tooting huh? in a very ordinary you know, working class family hmm? my father was just a, a French polisher sometimes out of work my mother was just an ordinary housewife so it seems very strange that someone like me should have emerged from those sort of surroundings but um, it's as though from the very beginning there was a very definite direction of my life a very definite direction of the whole course of my being I remember I first learned about the Buddha Siddhartha Gautama when I was about eight or nine and confined to bed I learned about him from the, the, the pages of an encyclopedia I also learned about other founders of religion I learned about Muhammad and I learned about Zarathustra as well as about the Buddha but um, Muhammad didn't appeal to me particularly I don't think even Zarathustra did but the, the Buddha certainly appealed to me and pictures of the Buddha or rather of images of the Buddha which I saw in that uh, encyclopedia stuck in my mind and a few years later when I happened to be in Brighton with my family on holiday I happened to see in the window of uh, a bric-a-brac shop a small brass image of the Buddha I think it must have been the uh, a, 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 a replica, a very tiny replica of the famous Kamakura Buddha of Japan so I went into the shop and bought it with my pocket money I must have been, yes, 12 or 13 at the time and not only did I buy that um, little image I bought at the same time a few sticks of incense what I later came to know was Indian incense very black and very sweet and uh, when we got home I remember I used to put um, this little image on the table and I used to, to burn one of my precious incense sticks and I just did this without really understanding the significance of what I was doing um, my parents must have seen me doing this they didn't make any comment they were used to me having strange interests and strange <laughs> ideas uh, 
so nothing was said. Hmm? Um, of course, in the, during the next few years, I read very widely in literature and uh, philosophy, and uh, as a result of that reading, I came to realize that I wasn't a Christian. Though I had attended a Christian church for a while, it hadn't made much impression on me. So I, I think it was when I was about 14 or 15 at the latest that I realized that I definitely am not a Christian. That was quite clear in my mind. Uh, but what was I? I didn't know. Not yet. But a time did come when in the course of my reading I came across books on Buddhism and more important still I came across actual Buddhist texts or rather translations of Buddhist texts. And in particular I came across translations of the Diamond Sutra and the Sutra of Wai Lang, the Platform Sutra as it's usually called. called. And when I read these, especially the, the Diamond Sutra, I at once felt that, well, this is what I really believe. Huh? This is what I've believed all the time. I've always believed what this Sutra teaches. That was my actual experience, my actual realization at that time. But um, I had not as yet met any other Buddhist. I was all on my own. And I don't think I talked about uh, my reading or my interest in Buddhism with anybody whom I knew. But um, eventually I came to hear of the, the London Buddhist uh, Society and uh, I started corresponding with the editor of their magazine and I started going along to their classes. Uh, this must have been in 1941-42. Hmm? And I made friends there. And it was there that I started to, to meditate after a fashion. I can't remember what sort of meditation we did. Hmm? Though I did remember that, I do remember that uh, the Buddhist Society had published a book called Concentration and Meditation, which I must have read. And I also remember that Mr. Humphreys, the founder of the Buddhist Society, used to recommend that we started off with learning to concentrate on a matchbox. <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, some of us duly did. Yeah? Um, but, of course, by this time, we were in the midst of war. Hmm? We were in the midst of war. And uh, I was, of course, um, living in London still. And I, I caught part of the Blitz. And uh, I remember that on one occasion I was at the Buddhist Society's premises, which were situated above... Um, a tea shop in Great Marshall Street. We were just sitting on our chairs, not on our cushions of course, no one sat on cushions in those days, everyone sat on chairs, and we were meditating. At least 
and at least our eyes were closed and we were inwardly concentrating perhaps on a matchbox perhaps on something else but anyway we were quiet but suddenly there was the noise of a tremendous explosion a bomb had fallen quite near and the windows all rattled but we didn't move so we weren't doing so badly for beginners you might say we didn't move but um, then along came the army I was conscripted and I was sent uh, to, to India um, I wasn't at all pleased or happy to be in the army I hadn't expected that they'd, they'd take me in view of my medical history but perhaps they were getting a bit desperate so they took me <laughs> and I didn't like the army at all and I ignored it as much as I could and pursued my own interests as best I could I certainly continued to to, to read books on Buddhism whenever I had the opportunity but I was very glad to be sent to India because uh, India was the land of the Buddha um, many of my friends and uh, colleagues in the unit they were dismayed eh, when they heard or when we heard that we were going to be sent to India India was like well, going to the ends of the earth so far away from their families they weren't at all happy but I was very pleased no, not that I was pleased to be separated from my family by so wide a distance but I was pleased I was thrilled with the idea of actually being in India the land of the Buddha but of course in those days there were very few Buddhists in India very few indeed, hardly any it was difficult for me to Buddhist for some years so I carried on with my study uh, of Buddhism you know, through books um, for about a year I was um, in Singapore still in the army and in Singapore I made friends with a number of uh, Chinese Buddhists so I got to know something about Chinese Buddhism at, at first hand but then after four years in the army I, I left and uh, as some of you know, those who've read my memoirs uh, know, I took up a sort of wandering life uh, in India not, not as a tourist, I did it properly so to speak I became a wandering freelance ascetic hmm? um, shaved my 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 head, shaved off my beard which had grown by that time and uh, donned the yellow robes, the saffron robes of the wandering monk hmm? so with a companion uh, a Bengali companion I, I, I spent a couple of years wandering around India um, sometimes staying in ashrams, sometimes staying in caves and devoting myself to, to meditation and the study of the Dharma of course I came into contact with many many Hindus of course Hindus were all over the place most of the people I came into contact with were Hindus and I came into contact with some famous teachers so I even spent time with them 
But though I came into quite close contact with some of these teachers, uh, my faith in the Dharma never wavered. I was always quite clear that it was the it was through the Dharma that I wanted to devote my life. And uh, a sort of turning point came, again as some of you may know, when I was uh, staying in uh, a cave um, on uh, the Arunachala mountain. And one night I, I had uh, a vision which I've described in my memoirs. I had a vision of the Red Buddha, Amitabha. And it was a rather unusual vision, as I thought at the time at least, because um, this Red Buddha was seated on a red lotus, and the lotus was floating on the waters of the ocean. And this Buddha, in his right hand, he was holding up a red lotus and behind him to one side the sun was setting and the the uh, the light of the the sun the setting sun was glittering on the waves so this was a very vivid experience and I took it to mean that it was time that I should um, take monastic ordination in the formal sense. Um, as I mentioned at the time, I thought that um, the kind of Buddha figure I had seen in this vision was uh, not very traditional. I'd never seen a, a picture of the, the red Buddha holding up a red lotus. Huh? So for many years, in fact, I, I thought that this was something not quite traditional. But not so many years ago, someone sent me a picture postcard from Nepal, uh, a postcard of a tanka, and there was the, the red Buddha with a, a red lotus in his hand, holding it up exactly as I seen it in my vision. So I realized that my vision wasn't so untraditional as I had thought. And not only that, somebody else, one of our friends, told me that uh, when they visited Kaningpon and went to see the, uh, the temple built by Jujong Rinpoche um, they saw amongst the, 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 the murals, the paintings on the walls again a figure of this same red Buddha holding up the red lotus flower so again it's as though that old vision of mine wasn't so untraditional as I had originally thought hmm? so as I said I, I took this, this vision to mean that it was time I got myself properly ordained joined the monastic Sangha so I was ordained as uh, a Samanera at Kusinaram and subsequently as uh, a Bhikshur at, um, at Saranath huh? I, I was very truly on track, so to speak. Yeah? Um, and then, of course, I spent some time with uh, Bhikshu Kashyap studying Pali. He took me up to Kaningpong and left me there, exhorting me to stay there and work for the good of Buddhism, which I proceeded to do by 
starting, among other things, the, the Young Men's Buddhist Association, which could be regarded as a sort of trial run for the FWBO. And, well, in the course of the years that, that followed, I continued to study, continued to meditate, continued to practice the Dharma, and was so fortunate as to receive instruction and initiation from some very distinguished Tibetan lamas, as well as from a Chinese hermit yogi. So 14 years, productive years, passed in Kanimpong. I did quite a lot of writing, including the survey of Buddhism. And I also got involved with the movement of mass conversion in the plains of India, which had been started by Dr. Ambedkar. So in that way, my mind, my, my, my life, you know, followed a, a very definite course. And of course, in 1964, I came back to this country after an absence of 20 years and two, three years later I started the FWBO and WBO. And uh, the rest of course is, as they say, history and of course a history of which all of you are now part. Hmm? So as I look back now as uh, an old man, nearly 83, I can't help thinking that um, there must have been some reason why I followed that particular path. There must have been some reason why my life followed that particular course hmm? without any, any real deviation. I mean, even the army couldn't stop me studying Buddhism. Yeah? And I wasn't tempted uh, by all these uh, famous Hindu teachers. I stuck to the Dharma. The Dharma was my path. It was the Dharma that I wanted to immerse myself in. It was the Dharma that I wanted to experience. It was the Dharma that I wanted to communicate. This was always clear to me. So sometimes I wonder, well, where did this tremendous urge come from? This, this, this urge which has played the dominant part in my life, you know, for the last at least 60 years, well over 60 years in fact. And when I look back and think, well, what sort of surroundings was I born into? Very ordinary, you know, working class, you know, surroundings uh, in tooting of all places. Huh? So what was there, there, you know, to account for my interest? And I, I can only assume that um, in all likelihood, it was some very powerful sanskara carried over from a previous existence which had impelled me to continue to follow a path which I had followed before and to reconnect with teachings and practices and experiences with which I had been con connected in previous lives. So this has always been to me one of the considerations which has led me to, to accept the, the idea of rebirth. Hmm? Now, I, I deliberately use the word consideration because it isn't a proof. Hmm? And many people might say that uh, I'm quite mistaken. 
and that my interest uh, in, in Buddhism, my devotion to the Dharma, uh, could be explained by some sort of, sort of gene in my makeup. Huh? But to, to me, it doesn't seem like that at all. To me, it really does seem as though I was following a path in this life which I had trodden in previous lives. So it is one of the considerations on account of which I do believe eh, um, in the, the effect of, of rebirth. Of course, there are, there are some other considerations too. This is not the only one. Hmm? And as I said, again, I emphasize that I don't regard uh, my, my impression or even conviction that uh, I must have followed this path before as in any way constituting a proof, much less a scientific proof, which might convince those who did not um, believe in the fact or idea of rebirth. But yes, there, there were no doubt um, other considerations. I'm going to talk now a bit about dreams. Hmm? I wasn't really expecting to talk much about dreams, but uh, I think I will. And people are often interested in dreams anyway. Hmm? And we know, according to some Buddhist texts, that Siddhartha had quite a number of significant dreams um, before he was enlightened. In fact, um, I wrote a poem on one of those dreams, which some of you may have come across. Um, dreams obviously make up quite an important part of our lives. Mm. Uh, in India, there's a traditional um, division of the human psyche into, into four parts, so to speak. There's the the, wake, the, the waking state, there's the state of deep, dreamless sleep, there's a dream state, and there's what they call the Turiya, the fourth, which covers all the, the higher you know, meditative experiences. Hmm? Um, so, dreams do make up you know, part of our experience part of our, our personality almost. Hmm? And many dreams, of course, perhaps the majority, are just reflections, shadows, of things that have happened to us in the course of the day. But um, I personally believe that there are dreams of a quite different kind also. And I've had many experiences of uh, these, these dreams of another kind, and perhaps some of you have too. I, I, I call these uh, dreams archetypal dreams. Dreams which are not just echoes of the day's events, but which have a, a higher or deeper you know, significance. And I've, I've had these sort of archetypal dreams from time to time in the course of uh, my life. I remember in particular one uh, such archetypal dream which repeated it in, repeated itself 
in various forms again and again in the, the course of a number of years. Um, I remember the first time I'd, I dreamt this dream, it took this particular form. Um, there was a mountain in the dream and it was in South India. I, I had this dream, by the way, in India itself before I came back to Britain. Um, at the foot of this mountain there was an ashram and this ashram was open to the public and there were people coming and going but behind the ashram there was a stair cut out of the rock, a sort of secret stair and this led up to another ashram much higher up and much smaller which people usually didn't know anything about. Yeah? And it opened onto, the, the stairs opened onto a wide platform. In the dream, I, I climbed up these stairs and found myself on that platform looking out over the landscape. And um, it was a very broad landscape and there were several factories dotted here and there. But not only that, at the top of the stairs there was a, a, a man, an elderly man in a white robe and behind him there was a sort of showcase like you see in Tibetan temples with lots of Buddha images behind the glass. So this was the image, this was the dream, the archetypal dream. Hmm? The, uh, the ashram at the foot of the uh, mountain, the public ashram, and the secret ashram, which very few people knew about, at um, the top of the, the stairs behind that public ashram. So this sort of dream uh, appeared to me many, many times in different forms, but there were always two buildings, one of which was public as it were and well known, the other was distant or hidden or unknown or sometimes even in ruins and in some dreams uh, people had forgotten about its existence. So I used to reflect on this dream uh, quite a lot and ask myself well, what, it, what it meant. I won't, I won't tell you the result of my uh, reflections, uh, they vary from time to time. But you could, perhaps you'd like to reflect on that dream yourself or even ask yourselves if you've had anything like it in the course of your own experience. So that, that's what I mean by a sort of archetypal dream which has uh, a deep significance perhaps. And uh, I want to, to fast forward now to maybe five or six years ago and uh, some of you know that uh, five or six years ago I had a whole year of um, chronic insomnia for which I could never discover the cause. It was quite extreme, quite severe, amounting in fact to um, what's known as sleep deprivation. And it was therefore a very painful period, a very painful experience. Um, since I wasn't able to sleep, I was able to sleep very little. My energy drained away. And I, I sometimes thought that, well, uh, 
I might even die. I seemed to have so little energy, I was so, so utterly exhausted. And uh, friends were very concerned, and I was quite well looked after during that period, and also was very much helped by, by acupuncture. But anyway, it was a, a quite uh, painful period, and uh, all I could do was just to remain aware, practice patience, and try not to feel frustrated. But there were compensations. In fact, I may say there was uh, a silver lining to that very dark cloud. In fact, I might even say there was a golden lining. Because during that whole period, I had some wonderful archetypal dreams. I didn't sleep very much, I slept very little. But when I did sleep, I had wonderful archetypal dreams of very, to me of very great significance. And it felt like a, a real gift, a real reward. Huh? a very positive experience, even I might say often a genuinely spiritual experience. And these, these archetypal dreams took many forms. Um, one form was, was that of all sorts of beautiful, brilliant jewels. Hmm? I've always been fond of precious stones or semi-precious stones for the sake of their the beautiful iridescent colours. But in, 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 in my dreams I, I saw the most wonderful precious stones and semi-precious stones of all colours, all very glittering and magnificent and beautiful and arranged in wonderful patterns and shapes. And these were immensely inspiring. Um, and again, I, I, I used to have uh, these archetypal dreams of, of wonderful sea scenery, very often mountain scenery, such as perhaps what doesn't exist on earth, and very often at the edge of the sea. And sometimes I'd be high up in the air, you know, looking down on the sea, looking down on these mountains. Or sometimes I'd be in subterranean caverns which contained all sorts of treasures. So I had many, many such dreams all of which I found very inspiring and which helped to sustain me uh, during that, uh, that year of chronic uh, insomnia, of, uh, of uh, sleep uh, deprivation. Um, you may wonder why I'm going on about these dreams, but I will, I will come to, to, to something that you may find uh, perhaps uh, more interesting. I also used to have uh, dreams of my various teachers. Hmm? I didn't have these dreams very often, but they did come from, from time to time. And they, they still come. And sometimes they're very vivid indeed. And there was one occasion when I had dreams of all my teachers. And that was during the, the week before I uh, handed on my responsibilities as head of the order to a small group of senior 
or the members. Hmm? Um, every night during um, the week immediately preceding that handing on, I, I dreamt of my teachers. Hmm? Each night I dreamt of several of them, and in the course of the week I must have dreamt of each and every one of them a number of times. And, and these dreams were very, very powerful and of a sort of visionary quality. And I took them to mean that in handing on my responsibility of the order, before the order in that way, I was doing the right thing, and that in fact what I was doing had the blessing of all my teachers. So it was of great importance to me, and perhaps of importance to the movement as well, especially uh, to the order. But um, let me now connect up with this, this question of, of rebirth. Hmm? Um, I've also had dreams, uh, though relatively recently, which uh, to me seem like um, recollections of experiences in another life. Hmm? Now, of course, I can't prove that they are such, um, but some of these, these dreams have been of such intensity, not the same archetypal in, intensity that I've spoken about in connection with some of these archetypal dreams, but a quite different kind of intensity, as though they, they were actual recollections of things that had happened to me in previous lives. Hmm? I'll, I'll give you just one example. Hmm? Um, it, it, as far as I can make out, thinking it over afterwards, uh, I was living in the 8th or 9th century hmm? in, in, uh, in this country at a time when uh, what we now call England was um, divided into seven or eight independent kingdoms which uh, were sometimes at war. And uh, I was the, the prior of a little priory. Hmm? Hmm? The prior of a little priory, believe it or not. Huh? <laughs> um, and I had under me 24 monks. Hmm? 24. And uh, one day, and this is the incident that I dreamt about, or which I remembered, hmm? um, the, a representative of the, the king of the particular kingdom where I was living came and said, well, the king is at war with uh, a neighboring king. He needs soldiers. You've got to send 12 of your monks to fight the soldiers, you know, for the king. So sadly and reluctantly, I had to part with uh, 12 of my monks and send them off to be soldiers and fight for the king. And uh, a little later on, um, a little later on, I don't know exactly how much later on, the dream continued and I was in the presence of the king. Hmm? 
with other counsellors, advisors. The king was seated on his throne, we were all standing, and uh, we were addressing him in turn, and it came to me to address him in my turn. And I can't, I, when I, I, just after waking up, I could remember what I had said to the king, but it didn't last, and I can't not remember. But I, I, I spoke, I said something to the king with regard to the, the political situation. So, uh, these, these particular dreams are of uh, such a kind, different from ordinary dreams, different even from archetypal dreams, but that I, I, I could only conclude that, well, they probably were reminiscences of another life. So, this is one of the, another of the considerations that leads me to accept the idea or the fact of, of rebirth. And I, I think it, it's quite likely that, uh, that uh, some of the things that people experience in the dream state are in fact recollections of, or effects of, experiences in previous existences. Um, but as I, as I said, I, I call them all considerations eh, that lead one or lead me to be, believe in rebirth. They, they, they cannot be regarded as, as proof. But um, there are other considerations too. Hmm? Um, I don't know if any of you have heard of uh, an English Buddhist called Francis Story. Hmm? He died some years ago and um, he spent much of his life in, in Sri Lanka. He was an Anagarika and he was especially interested in this idea of rebirth. And he wanted to, to, to see if it could be empirically verified. Hmm? And he, he, he did a great deal of research, mainly in Burma, where he also spent quite a lot of time and he investigated uh, a number of cases where young children uh, spoke about their having lived with some other family before in some other place and uh, he investigated a number of these cases and uh, he, he came to the conclusion that that in some of these cases the only possible explanation was that these children were remembering um, their existence in a previous life, usually in Burma also and not very far away from where they had, so to speak, reincarnated in this, this, this current life of theirs. So Francis Story investigated these cases in that way and concluded that there was the, the possibility of an empirical verification of at least some, or the, the truth of at least some uh, of these alleged recollections of previous existences. So this is another consideration uh, to be added to the ones that I've already mentioned and perhaps it is a consideration that has 
a little more weight than the others that I've mentioned, which might appear to be of a rather subjective nature. But uh, we can go a step further. Hmm? Um, I've, I've known at least two people who claimed to, be, uh, to have remembered uh, their previous existence. Hmm? Uh, one of these was uh, Lama Govinda and uh, the other was Dharga Rinpoche. Dharga Rinpoche, of course, was a tulku. I don't know whether other tulkus had any recollection of their previous existences. When I was in Kaningpong, I wasn't especially interested in the question of rebirth. Or perhaps I should say, not so much that I wasn't interested, but I wasn't interested in trying to establish it as a fact. I sort of took it for granted, as did the Buddhists all around me. Hmm? But um, I do remember discussing it with Dharata Rinpoche, and he, he told me that um, he, 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 did, he, he could, in fact, um, remember his, his uh, previous life, but that uh, the recollection faded when he was about seven. And he seemed to think that that was very often what happened, that um, before the age of, of seven, one might well be able to recollect uh, previous existences, but after that, well, the present life crowded in upon one and those old memories were overlaid and eventually forgotten. Hmm? But apparently his, his, his mother uh, remembered uh, an incident uh, where um, when he was very young, he must have been less than seven or eight, um, a female devotee had uh, invited him for a meal. Hmm? And uh, for some reason or other she had the uh, the uh, impression that the, that the, the young Rinpoche was not very willing to, to go to her house for the meal. So she expressed that, that feeling. So the young Rinpoche said, uh, well why should I be unwilling to go to your house for a meal? I've done it many times before. And uh, his mother took that to mean that, well, he was referring to his previous existence when he had in fact gone to this woman's house uh, for meals quite a number of times. And Dharada Rinpoche himself confirmed that yes, this is what he believed had happened. Even though at the time that I spoke to him, he didn't have any direct memory of that previous existence, but only remembered that he had remembered, so to speak. Huh? And then of course there was the, the, the case of um, Lama Govinda. And, of course, you may know that in his book, The Way of the White Clouds, Lama Govinda does discuss the question of, of rebirth uh, at some length. And he, he reports you know, some cases that he, he came across uh, in, uh, in, 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 in Burma. And I, I remember that um, one day in the course of conversation, I happened to mention to him that when I read his writings they reminded me very much of some of the writings of 
the early German romantics which I had happened to read, you know, in my teens. And he smiled and he said yes, that he believed that uh, he had been Novalis, one of these romantic writers, in his previous existence. And he said he had had once the experience, a strange experience, of reading something by Novalis and it came back to him that, well, he had written this, it was perfectly familiar. And this was one of the reasons why he believed that in the previous existence he had been Novalis. So there are all these sort of considerations, as I call them, eh, that have led me to be reasonably well persuaded that um, rebirth or reincarnation or metempsychosis, whatever one likes to call it, is in fact, um, well, a fact, not just uh, a beautiful romantic uh, idea. Hmm? But of course there's also something else to be borne in mind, and that is of course the testimony of the Buddhist scriptures, where we're quite clearly told that the, the, the Buddha did recollect his previous existences and was able to look out and see the, the births and deaths and rebirths of other beings. But of course, um, from a modern point of view, um, people aren't usually convinced if one, so to speak, invokes authority, even the authority of the Buddha. And some people, of course, doubt that the, the Buddha himself really believed in rebirth. Or sometimes they say that he simply adopted the teaching you know, because it was current in his time, that everybody believed in rebirth and therefore so the Buddha did. But the fact is, as is clear from the Buddhist scriptures themselves, especially the Pali scriptures, not everybody in India believed in rebirth. Uh, some of them were nihilists, materialists, and uh, the Buddha sometimes had to convince them. So one, one can't argue that um, the Buddha believed in or taught rebirth simply that because it was you know, the common uh, ideology of the time in India. So these, uh, as I've said, are, the, are, the, are some of the considerations which have led me personally to accept uh, the idea of rebirth. But of course I'm, I'm quite aware that for many Western Buddhists and even for some people in the FWBO, um, belief in rebirth is a bit problematic. And in the course of the last so many years, uh, people have sometimes asked me whether it's possible to be a Buddhist and not believe in rebirth. Hmm? And of course for many years my standard answer was that yes, you can uh, be a Buddhist and not believe in rebirth, but as a Buddhist of course you accept full enlightenment as the goal of the, Buddha, of the Buddhist life. So if you don't believe in rebirth, if you don't believe you have another chance later on, you have to go all out to gain <laughs> enlightenment in this very life. Eh? You have to sacrifice everything, give up everything. That's 
the only thing that you can do consistent with your belief in the Buddha as the enlightened one and your lack of belief in rebirth um, that suggestion of mine you know, often didn't go down very well <laughs> um, well in, in fact some people I think are are genuinely in a dilemma hmm? they, they, they believe in the, the, the teachings of the Buddha up to a point they really do want to progress they want to progress uh, spiritually but um, they don't believe in rebirth of course um, Buddhists in the East do believe in rebirth and of course uh, if you believe in rebirth uh, you also believe that well if you don't make it to the higher spiritual levels in this life well you can carry on with the journey in a future life hmm? and well that's quite true but the danger is and this is a real danger in many Buddhist countries that people put off uh, the real practice of the Dharma to some future life hmm? it's a sort of get out that they find it too difficult in this life alright they'll do it in another life under more favourable circumstances and many of them in some Theravada countries believe or they pray to be reborn when Metaya Buddha is alive so that then they can hear the Dharma directly from a Buddha and it will be much much easier to gain enlightenment so they don't bother much about actually practicing the Dharma in this life they just pray to be reborn when Metaya Buddha is around huh? so that is a bit of a cop out of course yeah? but nonetheless um, if you don't if as a western Buddhist you don't believe in rebirth well there's a tremendous uh, strain and tension that you've got to do it all now and no doubt if you were sufficiently determined you, uh, you could do it all now but I, I, I think um, in the case of those who, who don't uh, believe in rebirth the fact that they're brought up against the fact that well they have to do it all in this life now or not at all gives rise to a great deal of tension even a great deal of anxiety and is I think uh, rather counterproductive so I, I, I think perhaps the, the, the best way is to, to follow a sort of middle way eh? that we do our best to progress spiritually as much as we can in this life of ours but we, we are not too tense not too much under strain believing that we've either got to do it now or never just die as it were unfulfilled just keep at the back of our minds well the possibility of rebirth but not like some Eastern Buddhists uh, attach so much importance to the idea of rebirth and uh, of uh, future possibilities of treading the path to enlightenment that we forget or neglect to do so in, in this life itself mm -hmm. so these are just some of the, the thoughts which have been stirring in my mind um, just uh, relatively recently 
And I, I think perhaps uh, we, meaning we in the, the, the FWBO, the WBO especially, we have to ask ourselves, well, do we accept the idea of rebirth or not? I think we need to be quite clear about it, that, or at least try to be clear about it, because it isn't a very easy thing to be clear about. But I think we do owe it to ourselves uh, and to the Dharma even to, to, to ask ourselves what we really think, what we really believe because it, 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 it does have, it will have its effect upon our actual practice of the Dharma. So perhaps I should uh, leave you just with that uh, little exhortation perhaps that uh, we should give more attention to this particular issue, perhaps discuss it more. I remember in the very early days of Buddhism in this country when I was around the Buddhist society in the 1940s and during the war, uh, people seemed to have no difficulty in accepting the idea of rebirth. Uh, it's, it's later on that uh, some Western Buddhists experience difficulty. Many early Buddhists, early Western Buddhists, really welcomed the idea of uh, rebirth. And the problem in those days was with God, whether belief in God was compatible with Buddhism or not. That was the great uh, issue that was discussed. We seem to have left that behind us, but perhaps we do still have to deal with this question of, of rebirth, or some of us have to deal and make up our minds about it, if we possibly can, one way or the other. But at least think about it, talk about it, discuss it, and be clear in our own minds where we stand. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.